Whatever the assignment, timing is the prime consideration to meet the deadlines of the various editions. If there are any men in the room watching this programme, they might like to get up now and leave, because the newspapers this week have talked a lot about knickers. Flash! Exclusive! Here's front page news! You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. A journalist? Now what is that? That's not the full story now. This is Byline. Welcome to Byline, our companion series at the United Ireland podcast, where we talk to brilliant journalists about the stories that matter. Our guest this month is Isabel Hayes. Isabel is a court reporter at the Court's Criminal Justice in Ireland. Before that, she worked at Australian Associated Press in Sydney. Reporting on the courts is a very specific beat in journalism. Not only do reporters navigate complex legal barriers with regards to the reporting itself, but it requires a forensic knowledge of the criminal justice system. And in the day to day, you're also exposed to really distressing stories and have to adopt a particular writing style that can sometimes come across as coded or minimalist, but is actually a totally different set of skills that requires a cool head. Recently, Isabel's reporting on what became known as the Munster abuse case culminated in a fascinating and heartbreaking series of long reads for the Irish Times. We'll talk about that case and much more in this episode and try to give you an insight into what it's like to be a court reporter in Ireland and what some of the misconceptions are about that job. Welcome to Byline, Isabel. Thanks for having me, Anna. I feel really weird calling you that because everybody knows you as Izzy, right? In most people. Um, some of my current co-workers might not know that, but uh, most of the people from my wicked past would remember me as Izzy. Yes, for sure. <laughs> so we always start byline by asking um, our guests about the early stages of getting into journalism. Where did you grow up? When did um, the trade of journalism first kind of call to you, I guess? Um, well, I grew up in Finglas in Dublin um, and it was a house full of books. So I was certainly reading a lot from very early on. Um, I think like a lot of journals, I was always really interested in English and writing. Um, maybe more than anything else, like I wasn't particularly into current affairs. Um, but I remember I told my mom I wanted to study journalism like when I was leaving Cert and you know, my parents are always really supportive, but like my mother was like, okay, yeah, great. That, that sounds good. But like, y- you never watch the news, <laughs> you, n- you never read the newspaper. And I was like, so <laughs> to me, it was more initially about the fact that I liked English. I liked reading, I liked writing and journalism seemed to be a, a particular step. Um, so I went on to do journalism in DCU and it was great crack. Um, I had the best four years. Um, we were students together, Una. We were indeed. Um, <laughs> but I, again, I don't think I would say I was particularly engaged in the news side of things. I never got involved in the paper or, or the radio station. Um, but then I, we went into semester abroad to Boston University and I did some really amazing courses there. And I think that actually really opened up my eyes to the idea of long form journalism and writing and how I could kind of marry these two things together. Um, I came home and did my thesis on these five women who had extraordinary lives. And I think it was around then that kind of a a passion for journalism and writing and I suppose telling people's stories kind of took hold around then. We both went into the Sunday Tribune as interns. Um, You you first, you you, uh, 
broke that seal uh, before me. So you were able to give me all of the the goss when we were kind of, I guess, 21, 22 uh, before I went in. But that was your first newspaper gig proper, was it? 100%. Like I went in there as a, uh, like yourself on the work placement and it was the first newsroom I'd ever been in. I was like quite young, pretty clueless. Um, you know, it, it was the nicest newsroom in the world with some of the best characters. And it was just generally like great crack. I think there's very few newsrooms I've been in since that even come close to it. Um, but yes, like starting off there um, in a work placement, just, you know, not really sure at all what I was doing. Um, it was summertime, so it was it was silly season galore. And I remember one of the first assignments was to go out and do a vox pop with people on the street. Um, we had to show them the cabinet ministers and see uh, if the people on the street would recognise them. So uh, I think you were involved in this assignment too, Una. I did uh, not remember this. <laughs> okay, well, look, let's let's pretend you aren't then. I'll just say it's all me. So I'm sidling out the door, like going, okay, yeah, no worries, no worries. Yeah, sure thing. And the editor is like, hang on a minute. Do you know them all? And I was like, oh, no. Like, I was an absolute joke. I think I recognised the Taoiseach and maybe the health minister. Um, <laughs> so, like, I'd say at that point, they were like, who is this person? But look, I, I really got into it. Um, you know, I learned who was in government. So that was a really good start. Um, and I did find that I was really quite good at talking to people and getting their stories and writing about them. So, you know, that was a good start. I think, though, it was really challenging starting out in the Sunday Tribune because it was a Sunday newspaper and you'd be going into the Tuesday meeting, like trying to come up with these, you know, fresh new stories for the following weekend. And, you know, you're just out of college and you have no contacts at all. Like, so I, I did find that kind of hard um, for sure. But, you know, what I found I loved to write was the human interest stories and the colour pieces and the descriptive pieces. Um. Yeah, I think I think maybe that's why I actually love court reporting because you know you're you're kind of seeing the human life kind of playing out before your eyes every day and in the most fascinating way. And your job is to tell these stories. So I think that's that's kind of where I I got into it. Mm. Um, I have you to said, say, go on, go on. <laughs> it's again back to how I just wasn't really a news hound back in in the Sunday Tribune. Um, Back in 2006, for instance, I was um, spending quite a bit of time in the children's court for this piece I was writing coming up to Christmas about these these young people facing the court. And I was in court all morning and I was totally oblivious to what was going on in the world. Like, I don't think I even owned a laptop back then. Like, and I definitely didn't own a smartphone, obviously. So anyway, like I, I do my stuff in the morning. I get back to the office that afternoon and, you know, what's next on my to-do list is a Christmas fox pop because we're still doing fox pops. And this is where we get to call all these famous or, you know, semi-famous people and ask them the question. The question was, what does the spirit of Christmas mean to you? So I'm like, Grant, flick through my file of facts, my phone numbers. Oh, I've already done Louis Walsh. He would answer the phone to everyone all the time. It was great for those box pumps. Next on my list is Ben Dunn, which now really seems like a random choice of person. But anyway, I was like, look, Ben Dunn always answers the phone. I'll give him a call. Rang him up. Hi, Ben. How are things? Yada, yada. Yeah, look, just, just what we're doing spirit of Christmas so what does the spirit of Christmas mean to you and there's like the longest pause and I'm like um Ben can you hear me and he kind of clears his throat and he's like <clears throat> yeah yeah I'm still here and you know so he then starts to wax lyrical about the spirit of Christmas I think I think you mentioned log fires and I'm like grant whatever take off the list <laughs> get off the phone and my editor at the time dear McDoyle is staring at me and he's like is he was that Ben done and I'm like yeah yeah 
turns out when I was in the children's court that morning, the Moriarty Tribunal had handed down its findings and every journalist in the country was trying to get a hold of Ben Dunn. <laughs> as far as I'm aware, and look, I might be, I might stand corrected on this. As far as I wait, I'm aware no journalist in the country got hold of Ben Dunn that day, but I did. And I got what the spirit of Christmas meant to him. <laughs> So I, I, I think I was lucky not to be sacked that day, to be honest. Well, I think these kind of experiences were quite common um, for people starting out. I certainly had, you know, multi-clangor. Um, that spirit of Christmas one uh, obviously became quite famous in the people that you, we d- you d- dare to, to tell at the time. Um, not a lot of people heard it initially. It definitely didn't go too high up the ranks for sure. <laughs> Uh, but in yeah. my in my defence, I did end up winning an award for that little piece of the children's course. So that day wasn't a total write off. Okay, excellent say. work. <laughs> One of the things, like it's funny, Izzy, because you're obviously you're you're mentioning that you know you were in you were actually in the courts quite early on in your, yeah, in yeah. your career, and one of the things that you became known for um, in the Tribune at that time, and I don't think mean any offence by saying, despite the fact that you were so young was uh, that you were really good at what is, you know, kind of horribly called in journalism, death knocks, that you were exceptionally good at going to people's houses whose loved ones may have been killed or died in an awful way. And you seem to have this talent of being able to engage them in conversation. Um, That was my kind of observations of, of of you at that time and I really kind of noted it because I think I was quite bullshy at that time but this was just something that I, I I just couldn't do it I mean I think I had to do it once and I just was like I just cannot I cannot do this it's too scary I'm too embarrassed I'm too freaked out I, I just can't but why do you think that you were able to actually have be able to develop those relationships with complete strangers who'd gone through something difficult and talk to them in a very empathic way and a very non-sensationalist way and come out with these human interest pieces about people's lives and, and losses? Um, well, you're probably very kind. I, I tend to remember a lot of the, the door knocks or the jet knocks, as we call them, that, that didn't work out, you know, where understandably people were like, no. But I do remember I would try very hard to do it in a way that was, oh, it's an awful job, but to do it in the least intrusive manner. Um, sometimes with a little note in the door first so as not to, you know, be cold calling people um, and just seeing if they wanted the opportunity to to talk about their loved one. Because for every person who has died and who don't want the press in their door, I think I found around that time that there were people who, who really did want to pay testament to their loved one's life and the surroundings and the circumstances in which they had died. I don't know. I think I just, I just really, um, yeah, I did feel an empathy with these people and I loved kind of, not that I loved it, but I had a huge interest in, in people's lives and, and people's different experiences. And again, I think that's probably what I love about course today, just listening to absolutely everyone's, you know, different versions of life and, and the different paths that your life can take you on. It's it's fascinating. How long were you in the Tribune then before you decided to emigrate so shortly after Ben Dungate, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, in fairness, um, it wasn't connected, but around uh, shortly after that time, I was around 25, I think, at this point, And I just had a total travel bug going on. And I think like half the rest of the country around that time. 
Um, I really, really wanted to travel. So myself and my boyfriend at the time, uh, now husband, just packed up our jobs and we took off to Southeast Asia and, and then to Australia. Um, the timing is of interest here. This was early 2008. Mm. So we're there a few months and suddenly the arse falls out of the Irish economy. So we're like, OK, <laughs> we're not going home. But to be fair, we actually didn't want to come home. We had fallen in love with Sydney. Um, luckily, my partner Aidan had a really useful job in IT. So he actually got permanent residency now bother. So we could actually stay because as a journal, I definitely wouldn't have been able to um, hang on there. Um, and yeah, there started, I think, a period of six or seven years living in Australia and working there as a journalist for some uh, some <laughs> slightly odder publications than others. Um, but I was on a working holiday visa, you know, you could only work for a place for three months at a time. I got a very random job working for a paper called um, The Hornsby Advocate uh, in North Sydney. And I was writing about real estate. Excellent. So it was so random. I was, uh, I remember just I mean, going to all these places in the bush because it was up in the bush in North Sydney, places called like Barara and like just hanging out in people's houses and looking at their verandas and their, um, what's they call playrooms, rumpus rooms and <laughs> dry bars, which is just a, a bar in your house, which everyone in Australia seems to have and all their swimming pools. It was random. And um, then I was very hard to write, very hard to write property features. Uh, something I found out at the start of when I was started in the Times, those were the gigs that I was given. I mean, there's only so many words you can use when you literally know nothing about property to describe a place or a room or something. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And actually, I think the thing that upset me most was that they spelled veranda without a H at the end. That just really bugged me. <laughs> it still bugs me to this day. Um, yeah, so that was my stint in property. There was a time in the North Shore Times, which was, um, I was doing general reporting, so that was slightly more exciting. There was a time when I had to cover this story about a giant python that took up residence in this little old lady's house just in the outskirts of Sydney. And she's giving me like lemonade and stuff. And I'm just like, is the python gone? Like, <laughs> You did get it, didn't you? Did it have babies? Like, oh, God. Um, when I got permanent residency to end through Aiden, I was able to apply for better jobs. Um, and I randomly sent in my CV to the Newswire, their Australian Associated Press. Um, and they interviewed me and offered me a two days a week in their Sydney bureau. So that was a massive break for me. Um, I think I just got really lucky. And actually, I think they liked having an international staff. And my Irishness was actually an advantage rather than a disadvantage because for the most part, it's so hard to break into journalism in a different country with no contacts and, um, you know, not a huge grasp of the, of the news cycle. Um, and I was eventually made full time there. And it was it was just like an amazing experience then for the next few years. For the uninitiated, um, how does a newswire differ from a news outlet, like a yeah, newspaper like or something? I think we used to call it a news agency over there. And the vast majority of people thought I was selling papers in a, in a, in a paper shop. Like it's a really like under the radar organization, which supplies breaking copy across all fields to all of the media. Um, but, you know, you don't get bylines, you know, it's, it's really under the radar stuff. But, um, you know, from a media perspective, every single organization is relying on you to give the breaking news so like for me, like I went from having these weekly deadlines where you're sitting there on a Tuesday pondering your life on Sunday to having like, so just file that as soon as you can write three parts deadline. Like it was intense and it was crazy stressful, but like it was also this amazing adrenaline rush um, and I loved it. I remember my first job, um, I had to cover this helicopter crash. There was always helicopter crashes and light plane crashes in Sydney. I don't know why, but um, this is a rural fire service 
um, helicopter that had crashed. So like I'm out on my first day, like covering the premiere, like press conference. And then I'm, I'm filing in this breaking copy on the phone because, again, still, I don't know when technology is going to catch up. But at this point, still no like smartphones or laptops. Well, I didn't have a laptop that day anyway. Um, the next day I was covering this speech by the then Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd. And I'm doing a doorstop with him on the issues of the day. And like, I hadn't like still much of a clue as to like, I was still getting a hold of Australian politics and Australian news affairs. So I'd, I'd come a long way from your one who didn't recognize the Irish cabinet. Like um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that was a good like <laughs> trial by fire because I'd already done it in Tribune. So it was fine. Um, What's, yeah, what stories from that time stick out like? Um. A lot of the ones that stick out tend to be the court stories because mm. I did then go on um, to cover their courts for the bulk of my time there. Um, like I did stints in their like state parliament, which we called Parley, um, and I covered federal politics and elections and budgets. Um, but the course, the courts and the crime stories were the biggest because Australia is just, um, I don't know, like their politics is crazy and and their crime is is just it's just a whole other level uh, compared to Ireland. I don't know if it's the heat or or what the story like. Um, the 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 population say is fairly similar if you compare Sydney and Ireland. But I mean, when I moved onto the courts desk, you're covering like at least five murders a week. You know, right. and you don't get to cover them all because there are so many. You you start to decide which ones are newsworthy. You know, um, but. Yeah, there was just so many to cover. It was it was it was a lot. So I mean, ones that really stand out for me, I suppose, um, from that era would be I think there was one a nursing home murder, the Quaker Hill nursing home murders, where this nurse Roger Dean, um, he set the nursing home he was working on on fire just to try and hide his pill addiction, um, and he murdered eleven elderly patients that day. So uh, that was that was an awful day in court. Like it was just rows and rows of um, family members just standing up to give the victim impact statements. Um, I think he got 11 life sentences for that case. Um, there was a Lynn family murder case that, that went on for so long. I actually only covered part of it, but these are a family of five who were bludgeoned to death in their beds. And it was a total mystery as to who could have done it. Um, and eventually the uncle in the family was, was found guilty of those murders. I think he's serving five life sentences now. Um, there was uh, I, I covered when I when I moved into courts in Sydney, like I went I was covering like from local courts, like right up to federal courts. So we had some kind of random big civil cases like the Apple v. Samsung. We're having this massive copyright row that also went on for years. I used to hate when that case came up because I didn't have a clue what they were like all fighting over. I don't think anyone did, except for maybe the Financial Times person. <laughs> um, we used to talk to her a lot during those days. There was also like Gina Reinhardt. She's the world's richest woman. She was being sued by all her children over a trust fund. Um, I think that row is still going on to this day. Like these things trundle through the courts for years and years and years. Um, I remember a really fun case involving Mel B, the Spice Girl, because two of the Australian TV networks were, were having a big row over. Um, there was a little one, Paul Hogan, you know, Crocodile Dundee. Yes. Like, <laughs> he, was, he was before the courts forever because he had this massive long-standing tax evasion <laughs> case going on so it was it was just a broad range of stuff um I suppose there's a lot of cases that stay with you when you're in that in this kind of genre um and I suppose during that time um you know the ones that stand out to me I suppose are, are the child murders um I think in the space of two years I remember counting um four 
murders of children aged seven and under who were killed by either their parents or their parents' partner, usually a stepfather. Um, usually around the time of toilet training, it was it was awful. It was just this weird spate of, of murders. Um, but there was one in particular that was really, really huge at the time and really, really awful. Um, it was a six-year-old girl. Her name is Kaisha Abrahams. So she was reported missing by her mom, um, Christy Abrahams, and her stepfather. I think it was back in 2010. So interestingly, I was a general reporter at the time and um, I was sent out to Western Sydney to cover the case. So you know, we were there at this press conference with the mom and she's like roaring, crying, and she's describing the PJs the little girl was wearing when she went missing from the house that morning. Um like it kind of had a feel of Madeleine McCann about it, you know, like a little girl gone missing in her PJs. But then um, eight months later, uh, Kaisha's body was found in a shallow grave um, and the mother and the stepfather were arrested and emerged like they'd been physically abusing her for years. Um, I think they found out that she had 10 separate head injuries alone in like the few weeks before she died. And no one really ever will know, I think, exactly what happened. But the mother's story was that she struck her basically hard enough to kill her. Um, and then they hid her in a suitcase before burning it or trying to burn it and then burying it in a shallow grave. And um, so that was like a really, really awful case. But the cops in that case like, were fascinating. They played a total blinder. They befriended Christy and her stepfather and they just played the long game. Um, pretended to be their friends, kept getting them drunk and eventually got them to confide um, in them that they had killed Kaisha and then led them to the shallow grave in the bush because, I mean, like bodies go missing in Australia, they don't get found, you know, it's it's fast, the wilderness there. Um, so that was a that was a big win for the cops. And that sentence hearing was just really, really brutal. The, the mother did plead guilty. Um, but again, it just came out, I suppose, it was one of these cases and, and it's it comes around a lot of time that you just have to hear about the, the failure failings of social workers and mm. all the people who were there to protect her who who didn't manage to protect her. So it's it's a common feature of, of these kind of cases, unfortunately. And it's it's yeah, it's awful. You see it time and time again. One thing that strikes me about your work and about court reporters more generally is, you know, you really have to look at the worst of humanity all the time. Um, I suppose one positive is that sometimes those or those terrible deeds, you're seeing them through the lens of potentially some form of justice coming from them. But it's it's uh, it's hard going and we'll get into that in, in a little bit. But you move back to to Ireland in what year? Um, I have to think about that. I moved back in 2014. So right. we had already we'd always figured if, if we were going to start a family, we'd move back to Ireland just to be closer to um, family, of course. So um, I moved back in 2014. Yeah. And I was heavily pregnant and. You know, gave up my job in AAP, which, um, you know, I think really is still like one of the best jobs I think I ever had. And I still miss it. Um, and then I guess there was kind of a year of, um, you know, I just I had a baby. I was kind of in the baby zone, but also I just I didn't have a year to I didn't have a job to go back to. Um, I was in a bit of limbo. I remember I found it really hard. Um, like it was actually harder getting back into journalism in Ireland than I had been getting into journalism in Australia. And I suppose because you have a child and I was trying to juggle childcare, you know, I couldn't really work the long hours or the random shifts, for instance, I had done an AAP because of that, I suppose. So, I, and I did some freelancing at home for a while, but I found it really hard to get motivated freelancing. I just found it really difficult. And I think around this time I had like about three miscarriages in quite a short space of time. And 
my headspace wasn't great for a while. So it was, yeah, I remember 2014, 2015 were uh, not the best years. Yeah. Um, I did eventually start getting back into it properly. I think um, I worked a temporary contract in RTE in the, during the 2016 general election, which was good crack. Um, and around this time, I also started working for the journal for a few months. Um, again, one of the nicest newsrooms I think I've ever been in. Um, they're really engaged and, and fun and brilliant people there. And I think it must be when I was in, yeah, it was when I was in RTE that an old colleague um, from the Tribune actually said, here, have you tried like one of the court reporting agencies? And I was like, God, no, I suppose I should. Um, so he gave me an email for them and I got in touch um, with the one of the court reporting agencies based here in the Courts of Criminal Justice. And then, um, yeah, they, they offered me um, a few shifts for them. And as soon as I just came back in the door, I was like, oh, like, I'm home. This is it. it the similarities between my job here and my job in um, Australia covering the courts, like, were just, they were so similar. The, the similarities were striking. And I was just immediately just back in my happy zone. Um, so, yeah, they eventually offered me a three days a week gig, um, which is perfect for my family life because I have two kids now. Um, so here I am. Um, a lot of people, I think, may not be aware of the courts agencies, like the news agencies that are based in the courts. Like people may think, oh, there's just like reporters in, um, you know, on- or reporters in online outlets or print outlets or radio or TV or whatever, and then they get assigned to the courts. But that's not the ecosystem we're talking about here. So tell us a little bit about the court agencies and how how that day to day job works from an agency perspective. Yeah, it's interesting. I'd say like a lot of people actually think I work for the Irish Times or the Indo or the Sun or the Mail because they see my byline, you know, in these various newspapers. Um, when in actual fact, yeah, I'm based in a, a court reporting agency that's here, and we supply to all um, of the papers and other media and local papers and radio stations. Um, And there's a couple of agencies here that do that. And between us, we have divided up all the various courts. And then there's also reporters who cover the district court. Um, And then there's a whole other bunch of reporters based down in the four courts and they cover all the um, civil cases. So it's all kind of evenly divided out. And, you know, I think it's just, it's much easier for news organizations to have us based here. And I suppose in a kind of a specialist role providing, you know, copy to them um, instead of them having to try and send them people every day, you know, to cover this, that and the other. So what's the agency you work for then? Um, my agency is CCC Newact, mm-hmm. it's called. Um, and I'm there's so- another one, Ireland International. And I don't know the name of the one, the four courts, or if that is actually an agency or it's just a, a bunch of reporters working together, different right. the cases. And so you go to work do you just walk in blind or do you already have a case list or how does that work? How do you decide what to cover? Um, so every day we have a list of all the cases that we'll be covering and they're in the circuit court and in the central criminal court. And they're all here in the same building in the CCJ beside Houston. Um, so we have them all divided up between us and um, we, we go we, there's a lot of running around from court to court to try and, and chase cases, but you kind of work off a priority basis as to, you know, um, which ones are the highest priority that we need to be at. Um, I mean, in normal times, there's a lot of trials on and we, we can't possibly cover them all. There's just too many. Um, so a lot of time we're just kind of keeping an eye on these trials and, and taking notes and preparing, say, verdict copy or sentence copy if um, the people in those cases are convicted. Then we're obviously covering like, you know, the higher profile uh, trials that, that really need to be covered 
And then I suppose the bread and butter we're covering is, is the sentence hearings, um, which, you know, there's, there's a multiple number of sentences happening every single day in across the circuit and central. Um, so we'd be filing copy on those every day. And then there's actually a lot of admin and a lot of just keeping track of all these cases going through the courts because, you know, no one else is going to do it for us. So um, you're keeping track of arraignments. You want to, you don't want to miss an arraignment because then you won't know what the person pleaded guilty to, et cetera. Um, and, uh, yeah, just keeping track of mentions and dates. And I'm I'm an admin nurse, so I kind of love that element of it. That is not something I would be good at. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what kind of stuff do you cover? Is it mostly serious crime? It is serious crime. Um, it is almost, well, no, not almost always, but it's it's mostly rape and sexual abuse cases. But I also would cover uh, drug cases, uh, dangerous driving, um, child neglect, um, anything else that's before the circuit in terms of maybe theft and burglary. Um, what, what we don't cover is uh, murders or manslaughters or attempted murders. There might be occasional attempted murder, um, but mostly they're um, in aside to the other agency. Um, and... You know, the like one of the things that I um, or that I think everyone sees around, let's say, a particularly high profile case, like let's take a, a a rape case or something like that, is if it is high profile, you get an awful lot of online commentary. And there seems to be a lot of misconceptions um, w- which are totally understandable in the public about what can be said or what can't be said Um why things are written in a certain way. You know, people might get frustrated about terminology that they don't think um, is a fair representation of the crime in their eyes or, you know, um, opinion on trials and things like that. Like, what do you think are the common misconceptions the public has about what you can and can't say when you are reporting day to day on the courts? Yeah, there's, 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 there's quite a few of those. <laughs> I think um, one of the biggest ones, I think that really riles people is why we're not naming certain people, in particular uh, rapists, because the, for the actual reasons that we can't uh, name them, as, as, soon, as long as they are on trial um, under the law, they cannot be named um, unless or until they are convicted. Even when they're convicted, we can only name them if they have no connection with the victim in the case, because um, that person retains their anonymity um, for life, obviously, as a victim of sexual crime, unless they choose to waive it. So there's a lot of complications around that whole area. um, And I think there's a lot of anger, um, you know, amongst some members of the public when they hear about this awful rapist who's done these kinds of crimes. But they don't know who it is and this person is getting to retain their anonymity for whatever reason. And I think that to a lot of people, maybe that doesn't feel like justice. Um, there's a lot of issues, say, with I think a lot of people have a lot of issues with sentencing. And I think a lot of people would think that a lot of sentences are too low. Um, and look, in some cases, that can be hard to make rhyme or reason out of. But it's also, I suppose, what I would always try and make clear in my copy is the fact that the judge is bound by certain parameters in terms of maximum sentences um, or by mitigating as well as aggravating factors. If a person was a child at the time of the offence and like that reduces their sentence considerably. Um, but at the end of the day, some sentences just, you know, are, are hard to, to make reason of. Um, I think that does to get to people. 
Um, another one is the fix fix the headline brigade. I'm probably mm. going to get in trouble for that. But there's a like, uh, I actually think my epitaph at the end of the day is going to be like, court reporters don't write the headlines because like the headline will often take the case out of context and then you find your article is like coming under a grilling. But uh, there are cases that have to be worded a certain way because of the law, right? So for instance, take um, defilement. You know, if, if a man defiles an underage girl or boy, basically has sex with an underage girl or boy, he's guilty of defilement. But he wasn't charged with rape. He didn't plead guilty to rape. So you can't use the word rape, even though the person you're dealing with is a child. So like it's a tricky grey area. But when people see the headline and I, I don't blame them, like when they see the headline man jailed for having sex with 15 year old child, like there's outrage. But that's the parameters we're working in. And, and mm. we can't we can't change that to suit us. You know, that's that would just be incorrect, you know. Yeah. And um, the same the same goes for the term child pornography. Like it's an awful phrase and I can totally see why people hate it. But it is part of the law and it's what the person has been charged with. Um, so I would try and get around it a bit by using the word like uh, the phrase child abuse material um, mm-hmm. as much as possible. Um, but maybe the headline isn't going to say that at the end of the day. But for whoever writes the headline, you know, it's, it's a lot simpler to, to use a shorter headline. So I think the law does actually need to be updated in that regard for sure. That, that phrase is definitely updated. And I think one of the um, real flashpoints of, of this kind of... Um discourse, I guess, was around the Ulster Rugby uh, rape trial um, when defendants were named during the proceedings. And this is in stark contrast to our experience in the South, right? Because they're different, mm. different jurisdiction legally. Um, yeah. and, and that, I think, caused a lot of confusion for people as well. Massively, yeah. Um, and there's hugely differing opinions on that. Like there's there's one cohort will say, you know, they should absolutely all be named, you know, um, regardless of whether they are on trial or not, like regardless of whether they're found guilty or not. And then there's a whole other host of people who would say, no, they should retain their anonymity until or unless they're convicted. I would say Ireland is, is an outlier in that regard. Um, I don't think very many countries do that. And I wonder it's, it's kind of a throwback to our own history um, in this area. So it's interesting in Australia, for instance, um, yeah, I, could, I would name obviously um, accused rapists throughout the entire process, same as in the UK. Mm. It, it was an interesting one for me to, to change. And um, before we get to your recent work on um, what became known as, as the, the Munster abuse case, uh, Munster child abuse case, have there been any um, trials uh, or even incidents in the court or cases in particular over the past few years in Ireland that have really stuck out to you that you worked on, whether you found them very difficult or very unusual or, or that they change something in your, in your, in your psyche even? Um, I think one of the ones, I don't think it changed anything in my psyche, but um, Jovestown was one that kind of would certainly stick out to me in recent years. Um, if you remember, this is the case where the uh, water protesters uh, trapped John Burton and her advisor in a car during a protest and, and they were accused of um, falsely imprisoning her. Um, so that trial went on for about nine weeks. And I just remember it as being a bit of a circus. Like, I, I don't mean a circus trial. I just mean the whole thing was just a bit crazy like it went on for nine weeks it was really long the characters that were involved in the court 
the characters outside, like there were supporters of, of, of the accused who decided like they didn't trust like the media and they didn't trust the commentary in particular RTE. And they decided to run their own court commentary and their own like TV shows, basically like amateur TV stuff outside of court. A lot of which was in contempt of court because it was stuff that like they were reporting stuff the jury hadn't heard. Like to me, that was just quite wild. And it was a real like mistrust of the media moment. Um, yeah, that was that was a really very strange case. Um, and they were all acquitted eventually. Um, in terms of other standout cases, I think it's just that the vast majority of the time, I, I just cover an awful lot of rape cases. Like, and sadly, it's just a, the vast majority of them. I think I think there's a misconception among the public that like a lot of rape is stranger danger, and you know it's down a dark alley, or you know, and actually, you know, we do get those, but a, a lot of the time, um, you're just dealing with familial abuse cases, and and they they always kind of stay with you. And some of them are historic, but not all of them. Like some of them are recent. So you're talking like uncles or stepfathers or older brothers or cousins, neighbors. Um, and they are just, they're just such a, just they're tricky and they're messy and they're just really sad. Um, a lot of time also, like it's often in rape cases, the case of between two young people and like sometimes very young um, and sometimes with drink or drugs involved. And it's an issue where consent is the issue and you know one is alleging consent it was consensual the other the victim is saying claimed to saying no it absolutely was not um and they're also very tough cases to hear and they're actually really tough for the jury um because you know the jury's being told like you cannot convict like unless you know you are sure beyond reasonable doubt this happened but like in these cases there is ample room for doubt like there's no one else there it's he said she said in most cases um yeah, so they're they're tough and they're sad and they're traumatizing. I think, especially for the complainants, um, and I think there's an underreportage of a lot of these cases. I think there's a lot more. There's definitely a lot more going on um, in terms of how many cases are happening in the courts, and perhaps a lot of the public are aware. Well, how many cases would be like? How many serious sexual crime cases would there be in the courts, like ballpark, every month? I don't expect you to have an exact. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if I look at the average week. Uh, there must be about 20. Every week? Now, so, well, no, some of them might be sentences. Um, right. There wouldn't be that. And, but, but yeah, and a lot of them will be up for trial. The trials just may not get going, but there's a list just there. The, the list is, is ever, ever rolling. Um. So, yeah, there, there's a loss for sure. Mm. Um. Your reporting on the Munster child abuse case has been you know, second to none, I think. Um, you have written two very long pieces, which is so heartening to see uh, in Irish um, print media. We don't often get that. Um, it's a resourcing issue. It's a, it's, a, it's a talent issue as well in some cases, like being able to write all of that stuff um, in, in a long way. Um, Connor Gallagher is good at those as well. Um, Absolutely. Amazing. And um, I just wonder, can you take us through that case and your experience of being in the court for that? Uh, What was the case? How long was the trial? And how difficult were the... um, An obstacle is not the wrong word, but the, the, the... the barriers, I suppose, of anonymity um, that you had to navigate in order to actually report clearly on what was going on with with actually giving very few 
details of, of the people themselves. Yeah, it was like an incredibly complex case. And I don't think anyone would deny that it's like one of the worst abuse cases probably to come before Irish courts, at least in recent years. Um, so, you know, it involved the five family members. So these are the parents and the aunt and the uncles of um, five children. And they're accused of sexually abusing three of them. Um, and the parents are accused of the willful neglect of all five of them. Um, it was extremely complex. There was obviously your usual reporting restrictions in a case like this. So um, you must retain the anonymity of the children. Um, therefore, you know, you cannot name any of the relatives involved. You, um, we couldn't name the location. Um, so you just say the province of Munster. You, you actually could not name anybody in this case. I couldn't name the social worker, the inspector, any of the guards. Um, so in that sense, it was quite difficult. Um, and a whole bunch of other reporting restrictions were, were put in place throughout the trial by the judge just to, to protect the welfare um, of the children. And there's this limitations on what one can even say about what they were. But it definitely made our job um, extremely tricky um, and challenging. And, um, you know, there's a lot of worry, you know, that you're going to mess it up. And you're just thinking, don't mess it up. Please don't mess it up because, you know, I guess it's the difference between other reporters' jobs. I mean, you know, if, if you mess up, you're going to get a clarification the next day. If a court reporter messes up, you might be in contempt of court. Um, more importantly, you might collapse a trial. And that's, I think, every court reporter's biggest nightmare. You're thinking how you've let everyone down then, like the cops did all this work, the children have to go through it again. Um, so, yeah, like it was it was stressful. And um, the subject matter was, was very difficult to deal with. Um, there's only so much one can say about the um, sexual abuse that the children um, endured at the hands of their relatives. But um, what I can say about the neglect stuff for sure is that it was just absolutely harrowing. I mean, I was sitting in court one day just listening to the social worker and um, her evidence was just actually mind boggling. Like it was kind of hard to listen to. So um, she was discussing how she first called to the house um, of the parents and like knocked on the door and the mother let her in and she just saw this like slice of pizza on the ground and it was like not moldy it was fossilized it had been there so long and the walls are painted this really dark glossy brown and it emerged later that the father had been painting the walls like instead of cleaning them he just kept painting over and over in this dark glossy brown color so like that was really grim um there was these dark, heavy, thick blankets covering every surface. There was like mouldy food on the stove. There was no cleaning materials in the house. Like it was just, um, yeah, really hard to listen to. I remember she was like, the mother seemed really excited to show me the little girl's room. So she showed her that and like it consisted of just like a pink Hello Kitty duvet and a lampshade. And that was like the best thing in the whole house. Um, yeah, and on the same day, she, I think... One of the standout moments is when she describes just going back downstairs and she was describing this house as so grim and desolate and filthy and bare. And you'd never know there was five children living there. And then she notices this movement amongst one of those really thick blankets. And like she pulls it back and there's like a little baby under there, an 18 month old baby, um, just really tightly strapped into a buggy. And he's staring up at her with these big eyes and he can hardly speak and like it's really, that was really, really hard to listen to. I'm sh and, and, and just really hard, I suppose, you know, to describe it accurately, you know, and to, to, to really get that across. 
um, as best you could. But I, I remember at the time just thinking like this, this story just has to be told, you know, and it needs space and it needs time because there's so much in it. And when you're covering a court or covering a trial from day to day, just you're constrained obviously by only what the jury has heard. And you're also just putting your own constraints on yourself to, you know, you can't be injecting drama. Like the whole point of a court report is that it's absolutely, you know, just pure straight, you know, evidence and really balanced. Um, so, yeah, I think when the trial was over, then it was really, it was possible to really pay testimony to, to what these children went through and to really give them a voice because they had just been voiceless for so long, you know. Um, so it was, it felt actually really good to just put them front and centre again, kind of back where they belonged, I guess. And you did such an astonishing job. Um, if people haven't read those pieces on the Irish Times, um, you can just search uh, Izzy's name and, uh, and both of those pieces will come up. Um, they're, they're, I mean, it's astonishingly complex uh, writing, even considering, as you say, Izzy, that you couldn't mention anyone involved or identify anyone involved. So you have to develop these different narrative structures so that people know who you're talking about and there's so many people involved and there's so many um awful awful details uh yet when you read the the piece you you understand you have a picture you're not confused so even as a as a that might sound a bit trite given the gravity of the subject matter but as a, as a as as pieces of writing they're they're so um so so Brilliant and, and and well done, and I was interested in the in the one um, the most recent one uh, which was around the sentencing. Is that correct? And the victim impact statements. Yes, yes, dealing with the aftermath of the abuse. Yeah, so the the initial one dealt with the the trial and the facts of the abuse, and this was the aftermath. Given that you sat through all of uh, that testimony um, and evidence, which must have been. Uh, a horrific experience in and of itself. What did you f- learn or find about the aftermath when these children were taken into care? Um, how did that transition go for them? And do you think that it was, you know, you mentioned the word grim there at the outset. Do you still have the same feelings about that, given that uh, time has a small amount of time has passed in their own development and safety? Yeah, I think there's definitely um, it, there's definitely a lot more hope um, now because um, and only really because they have been taken in um, all five of them by some of what sound like to me the most amazing foster parents. Um, they were split up into three um, different families, and the foster parents um, all gave these victim impact statements, and the, the children um, wrote some of their own as well. And the foster parents like painted a picture of, of what they had of the children they met and the children they just, they were not remotely prepared for in terms of, you know, the amount of needs they had, um, you know, and how damaged they were. I mean, it was incredible. I think the oldest were maybe six, seven and nine, but they didn't even know how to use a toothbrush or to clean or shower themselves or how to use a knife and fork. And like they had vomiting issues because they didn't know how to handle food. Um, they didn't, couldn't believe there was food in the presses, you know, um, the younger ones had major attachment issues. I think they probably all had attachment issues, but the younger ones, it would manifest itself and that they would just never even cry for help. And they didn't know how to hug or kiss. Um, 
But, you know, in terms of going forward, um, you know, the foster parents just outlined all of the supports they have sought and they have got for these children and a huge number of specialists. And, you know, they showed a real level of um, self-awareness as well in talking about how, you know, they hope they can have the supports that they need as foster parents to help these kids going forward. And I think what really shone out of these victim impact statements was just how loved they are. Um, I know the eldest foster mother called, was talking about her eldest, the eldest boy is the most handsome, beautiful boy. And we're so lucky to have him in our family. Um, and, you know, they each, each of the foster parents, they had varying levels of, um, you know, hope as to how they're, they're going on, you know, how they're all going to get forward with this. But, you know, it was, it just really shone out how they are leaving no stone unturned to really make sure that these kids get absolutely the best shot they can get at a normal life and, and, and to help them recover from their traumatic early childhood. Mm. So that was really, really, there was definitely, um, you know, it was really a, a more hopeful ending to, to what is a, a terrible case. But I, I don't think anyone can underestimate um, or can even begin to guess, you know, um, how they are going to go going forward. And I think um, the judge, Mr. Justice Paul McDermott, noted that, you know, everyone has their own levels of resilience and everyone deals with this in a different way. You know, so he was given these psychological reports about, you know, estimating how his children might be going forward. And he himself said it's, it's an uncertain process. But, mm. you know, I'd, I would definitely be more hopeful. One of the most poignant um, parts of your second piece, I think, was when one of the children was so unaccustomed, as you say, to the there being food in the kitchen that when neighbours or people called over, they would show them the fridge and what was in it. Yeah, there was so many of those little moments where you just go, oh, my God. Um, so something that is so basic that most people don't even think about, you know, food in their fridge. But this little kid was so excited that any time anyone came over to the house, be like, come and see the fridge. And I opened up the door and showed them the fridge with food inside. There were so many of those moments um, in 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 that trial and, and in the sentencing that would just give you pause for thought and be a real kick in the gut. I remember there was another moment when the oldest foster mother during the trial, I think she, she nearly cried herself remembering it. And it was a really basic moment, but I think it made everyone nearly have a bit of a catch in her throat where she brought the oldest boy shopping the next day because he had nothing. They all had nothing with them at all, like except for the clothes in their backs. So the first day he was with them, she, she brought him shopping for clothes and shoes. And I remember she just said, like, he got a lot that day. You know, we, 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 we did a lot of shopping but they bumped into the two youngest little boys. Um, I think it was anyway, some of his younger siblings and they were all really excited to see each other. And when they were saying their goodbyes, I think the, the oldest foster boy said to his, his new foster mom, I, I hope they got some new clothes too. And it was just, you know, it was just one of those moments where it's just really sad, you know, we're just like, oh. I think she was quite upset remembering that moment. Mm. Is he everybody who, who is aware of your work and aware of, 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 uh, yourself as a person knows that you are um, so sensitive and open and caring and all of those things and considerate. Um, and yet you were working in a context that is extremely emotionally demanding where you are dealing with very distressing uh, stories day in, day out, some of the worst crimes that you can imagine or even crimes that you can't even imagine. And also witnessing uh, aspects of Irish society where it's clear that there's certain groups of people through whatever reasons are, are kind of falling through the cracks. What is the impact on you personally and how do you 
cope with that? Are you able to switch off when you go home? Um, yeah, I think for the most part, it it definitely is. Um, it can be difficult, like covering some of these cases day in, day out. It does take its toll on you personally. And I think you have to be really careful to separate your work and your home life. And you have to do your best to compartmentalize it. Um, but yeah, like I think when you're doing something long, um, long running, like the monster trial for 10 weeks. Um, yeah, like my two boys are three and seven now. So they're kind of within the age range of the most children. And it was very hard not to like see the parallels between them and come home at the end of the day and like just see how my children respond to like this basic love and affection and care. And you think, oh, my God, like these kids aren't even getting that. And, like, and that's before you've even begun to contemplate like the horrific sexual abuse that they're enduring. So like it can be a bit like that with, with quite a few cases um, where they do stay with you or, or small details stay with you. It's kind of odd, the small details Another one from the Munster case was um, that the children often had dirty lunchboxes. And it just comes into my head every night when I'm cleaning my kids' lunchboxes. You know, it's it's odd how the little moments come back. I remember a judge in Sydney telling me um, we were covering another child murder case of a toddler who had been murdered by her stepfather. I think she was only about two. And she was wearing Dora the Explorer pyjamas at the time. And the judge said to me, you know, oh, yeah, yeah you try and compartmentalise these cases, but that his own granddaughter had come to visit him that weekend wearing a door to explore a top or a watch or something. He was like, yeah, like it just give you like a kick. Like it's, it's sometimes it's, it's the small details that can kind of come, come back and get you. Um, but I think I suppose at the end of the day, um, what, what, what works for me is, is that I remember that I'm kind of there to do a job and to do it really as best I can. And I guess I just really, I'm trying to accurately describe a court case as best you can like within the parameters or whatever reporting restrictions are laid out. And, and you know, it, a lot of these cases I cover are in-camera cases. Like they're not open to the public, like COVID times or no, you know. So you have to be like the public's eyes and ears and also, most importantly, like not mess it up. Um, so it does it does take type of personality to do it. Um, but I think for me, it was, it, you know, you, you, you really want to pay testimony to everyone involved in these cases and really... I suppose just let the public know exactly what's happening in the courts. And I do get a huge amount of job satisfaction of, of, of describing these cases. And I guess maybe in a small way, just raising awareness as to how our justice system is, is going. Mm. Given the emotional strains of it, you're, you're kind of answering it a little bit. My next question there, but like, can you identify, you know, it is no accident that you kind of gravitated towards the courts starting out in the Tribune, ended up in the courts in Sydney, work in the courts now. It's a very specific job. You also uh, have excellent shorthand, which I think... <laughs> I'll give you the tenor, I promise you, for that earlier. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's Don't forget my shorthand. <laughs> it's something that a lot of journalists uh, let fall by the wayside, uh, slash never master, and I include myself in both of those categories. What? You're kidding. <laughs> this is a standard yes, joke yes. about how terrible I am at shorthand. Um, um, when you write shorthand like in college. Yes, <laughs> I did. I did. Um, the shorthand. But you you have excellent shorthand, which is an amazing skill. Thank you. Thank how you. would you how would you how would you describe shorthand to to people who who don't get it? Jesus, um, it's like Morse code on paper, isn't it? It's a series of um, incomprehensible slashes and dashes. Um, it's 
you know, you, for each uh, word, you you have various just little kind of squiggles. Basically, someone who's looking at it would not have a clue what they're looking at, and um, other people can't even read someone else's shorthand because mm. it becomes so um, it becomes so unique to you. Um, but yeah, I, I was a total shorthand nerd in college, as you know, and. Um, to be fair to me, I totally lost it then because we did shorthand in third year of DCU. And at that point, you had to um, pass it to get your degree. Um, and then you go into fourth year and you just get locked for the year and you totally forget it. <laughs> and I didn't use it in Tribune at all. Um, so it was actually only when I went back to Sydney or went to Sydney and joined AAP and they were mad for training courses. Um, and they trained me up on shorthand and not only that but they made sure I got the correct course for what they called the old-fashioned shorthand because I have Pitman Pitman yeah yeah Pitman as opposed to T-line yeah and so they trained me back up on it and I I basically relearned shorthand in Australia and um, I've never lost it since even in my times out of work um, I've just I've kept that skill I do find it is um, really 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 good for course because again you know I, I assume most people know this but it's not like ordinary reporting jobs you can't just go in with your, your recorder or your dictaphone or whatever and um, you know we just all we can do is just sit there and then take down what we hear so most people do do it on their laptop and fair place and I'm like I'm just not that good a typist um, for me I just find the L notebook and pen um, is the best but I think I'm a bit of a dinosaur in that well I think shorthand <laughs> when you when you are so proficient in shorthand as you are you know it's infinitely faster than even very fast kind of typists right I think so. I think yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely feel like I'd be able to get really long quotes out of it fairly um, quickly. We had that shorthand segue there, but what I was going to ask is like fundamentally given your history in the courts and even though it's so difficult and you're still doing it and you're still enjoying it and you're still, you know, getting, you know, making great work out of it and doing brilliant journalism out of it. Why do you do it? Do you think? There are easier gigs. Um, are easier gigs in some ways, but not in others, because in many ways, I wonder, does it come back to the fact that I'm not a massive news hound? Like my idea of a nightmare gig is being a political correspondent or mm. like being out there hustling politicians and working the phones. Um, I think for me, that would be a much harder gig than what I do. So I suppose, you know, everyone, each their own. What I love is that I come in every day and I'm just like... A, like a spectator almost of, of human life and, and what's happening in the world. And yeah, a lot of it is like the horrible things that people are doing to each other. Um, but, you know, you get massive, like you hear a huge amount of life stories and psychological backgrounds. And I just think it's it's really, really, really fascinating. I find it fascinating and no one day is, each day is so different. Um, every single day is different there's a new story every day. And if it's not a new story, it's a new aspect of a story. And it's just this huge in, like insight into human life. And I love it. I absolutely love it. I don't see myself doing anything else ever, to be honest. And I'm only 39. <laughs> not quite that old yet. <laughs> but I just have, I, when, I, when I started in courts properly in Australia, I was like, this is the best gig in the world. I adore it. I really do. Um, yeah, I just find it fascinating. And finally, what cases are you working on right now? And is there anything coming up that you think will be of huge 
or significant uh, public interest this year that you can mention? Yeah, I was about to say, <laughs> there are definitely cases coming up this year, but I'm not sure I can mention them. So um, let's just say there's a couple of long ones that um, may be kind of dull, um, and but which we will certainly be covering. Um, then, yeah, I mean, at the moment, actually, courts uh, are only just beginning to pick up again because... Um, Due to COVID restrictions over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of stopping and starting, particularly in trials. Um, So at the minute, we're just covering a whole rake of sentencing matters that judges are trying to get through while juries are impaneled. So, um, yeah, I just I just I just wrote a story yesterday about um, a 37 year old uh, Limerick man who was jailed for eight and a half years for raping his little brother when they were children. Um, And I think it's. I think there's been three of those cases in the last couple of weeks of older siblings um, sexually abusing their younger siblings um, in their home when they were young. And it was a really sad case. And it's fascinating because it's it often happens in these cases. The parents um, didn't side with the victim. Hmm. So you have two sons and um, the younger son uh, did eventually confide in his father about the abuse he had suffered at the hands of his older brother. And his father initially seems to support him. Um, and went to cops with him to make the complaints. But um, then they just wanted to keep it on the quiet. And when the victim was like, no, like, I'm not going to keep him quiet in this, they ended up siding with the older brother. It was really sad. So the victim in this case is doubly traumatised. And I've seen this in quite a lot of cases. Not only are they dealing with the impacts of sexual abuse at the hands of a sibling and, and someone who was supposed to love and protect them, they're also dealing with the loss of their entire family who have turned on them, who are not supporting them, uh, in some cases such as this, actually actively siding against them. Um, so yeah, it's that's that's the kind of the heartache and the and the you know familial dynamics that, that come up every day in here. Um, so yeah, um, but hopefully trials are getting up again this week. It's, there's massive delays as well. So some trials at the minute, if you you know are up for a crime today, you're probably not going to get a trial until 2024 at least. So that's obviously a huge issue as well for the court service. Mm. And just one more thing before you go, sorry to, to add one more, <laughs> more Columbo mode. One more thing. <laughs> I glanced at a headline, you'll be delighted to hear, uh, and didn't Great. read the full story <laughs> um, the other day. And, and it was basically someone saying, you know, if alcohol was banned, uh, the district courts would close in the morning. Yes. Um, and the, yeah, you, uh, you, is, is an awful lot of stuff that you see alcohol fueled or does alcohol pe- play a factor? Yes. I don't think our courts would close, but I would not have so much work to do for sure. Um, obviously district court deals with petty crimes and they would obviously be a much more fueled by alcohol a lot of the cases I'm dealing with such as the one I just described or the monster abuse case in which alcohol didn't play a factor at all actually um, you know obviously they would not be impacted but um, in general terms yeah like we'd, we'd lose there would be a lot less crime in the world but it, especially you'd have to rule out drugs as well I think it's drugs and alcohol mm. equally um, but at the end of the day we're still going to have our um I won't say child pornography cases, our child abuse material cases, we're going to have, um, you're going to have dangerous driving a lot of the time with or without drink. And um, unfortunately, sexual abuse is certainly not one that is motivated by alcohol, for sure. Um, 
but yeah, I think it would it would definitely lower the caseload substantially in mm-hmm. other cases. Well, Izzy, thank you so much for all of your insights um, and for your great work. Um, And I hope people who haven't read those uh, pieces on the Munster uh, child abuse case do now after hearing um, your just about your 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 job. I mean, I just find it totally fascinating. Uh, It also requires serious resolve and uh, a lot of resilience. And you have that in spades. So keep up the great work. And thank you so much for uh, having chats on this episode. Thank you for having me, Una. 